We have to scale. In the United States, there's a company called Norton LifeLock, and they help with cybersecurity and protecting our identity and all that. Well, Avast is the same company, but in, in the, Europe. So they're merging. So they're getting ready to merge the two companies together, and they're going to have a base of 500 million individuals and families that they serve. Well, they just confirmed our business model because they bought the pioneer of self-sovereign identity. But they're only going to be serving 500 million. So there's still another 7 billion people out there that need help. My name's Gordon Jones. I'm co-founder and CEO of Validity Corporation, creators of the Thrivacy Wallet. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Dr. Gordon Jones took an idea and his experience and created the digital password for identity and security. All this and more on Code Story. Dr. Gordon Jones just turned 60 years old, but you wouldn't know it from his energetic, vibrant tone. He has his doctorate in health administration, but he got into health technology in 1997. He lives in South Carolina with his wife and five adopted children. Dr. Jones and his wife adopted their first child one year after they were married as they felt led by God to pursue this path. Their main family activity is watching movies together, but they love to throw the frisbee, travel, and ultimately be together doing new things. While teaching at the university, Dr. Jones came across a student's idea to provide security around her identity. In addition to that, he had recently gone through a lengthy background check process, which required the re-verification of several bits of information. He decided to solve both of these problems by creating a solution using the blockchain. This is the creation story of Thrivacy. So I teach blockchain, data privacy, and self-sovereign identity in the uh, college. In all of my coursework and everything I do, I teach entrepreneurship. At the beginning of every class, I have my students think about a problem that they either are having them personally or something in their business that they're getting trained to go into that they would want to solve while they're learning about these tools. At the end of the uh, semester, they have to submit a one-page executive summary and then a PowerPoint that, and then they have to give a three to five minute pitch on their idea. One of my students in 2020, Erica Barnett, her thought was she wanted to help secure student identity. So like they lost their IDs, whether there's a school ID or their driver's license or whatever, their wallet, their purse, whatever, they lost that and their identity was stolen. How can we help secure their identity? And then on the other one is security and safety. So when she goes down to the bars and they're carting her to buy an adult beverage, when she does that, she's handing over her whole driver's license with her name, her home address. And so now if there's a particular person who is interested in stalking her, then now he's got her name and home address. So that was her problem that she wanted to solve leveraging the technology we were, I was teaching about. And then my problem that I had already had was I had just got onboarded at the university as an adjunct professor 
And I haven't gone through a third-party background check since 1997 because I've been working for myself. So when you go to an employer, apply for a job, before they hire you, they have to do this third-party. They have to hire a third-party company to verify your education, your work history, and even your criminal history. And that was, uh, I mean, that process, I just realized how stupid it is. I was wondering, why isn't my LinkedIn profile all my attributes that I've already listed on my LinkedIn profile, except for my criminal history. Why isn't that information already verified and then turned into an immutable record in some form or fashion? So that an employer can just go to my LinkedIn and do what they need to do to verify the information, but it's already there, verified. It's an immutable record, so I didn't go in and change it after it was verified. So they could trust that information and then go ahead and hire me on the spot instead of having to hire some third party to spend three days to three weeks to vet out who I am. So we ultimately ended up meshing those two ideas together because we realized that your identity is not just your name, your home address, your birth date, your blonde hair, your blue eyes, whatever. It's, I went to this school, got this college degree, got this master's, got certified in this professional association. I have this, this work history. Um, even the fact that I have, uh, I can drive in the state of South Carolina and I own a, a car. So all those are attributes that make up really who I am. And then my capabilities to do things like work or qualify to run, run in the Hawaiian Ironman or whatever it is, there's the credentials that you're required to get through to do things. Basically what we wanted to do was we wanted to help people protect their data privacy in order for them to have the freedom to be able to do what they want, not, not only in the digital world, but also in the physical world, because you can use your wallet in the physical world. So we came out with the name Thrive is C, where we were combining, hey, thrive in the world through protecting your privacy. Tell me about the MVP, so that minimum viable product, that first product you built. How long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? So we're, we're still building it. <laughs> But in the early days, we only had a little bit of money, so we had to figure out, okay, who are we going to find to help build this thing? Because neither Erica nor I are programmers. So one of the first people we brought in was a guy by the name of Seth McGaw. And he's not a programmer either, but he's really deep into blockchain like I am. And we brought him as a co-founder, and he's our product manager guy. We faltered in the beginning. So we identified some low-cost tech developers in the local community. And they ultimately did not deliver. We had to fire them. And then we did kind of almost the same thing again by accident. It's not really they didn't deliver. It's just that we didn't need exactly what their capabilities were. But so finally in July of last year, we made a company that's focused on developing digital wallets within what we call self-sovereign identity. So they've been working with us since uh, really August. It's a platform play where we're verifying credentials and we're leveraging an open source blockchain called Hyperledger uh, in order to verify the information that we verify from the issuers. We actually had our soft launch and demonstrated five use cases on December 1st. Then we've been kind of tweaking it a little bit more. Our first pilot project is with uh, the, South, the University of South Carolina. 
And so what we're doing for them is we're going to be converting those college degrees into these verifiable credentials. We're going to let them download a Thrivacy wallet for free, and then we're going to provide them with their college degree in this digital format of verifiable credentials so that they now have the first USC college degree ever in the format of a verifiable credential that they can use to go apply for a job with an immutable record so that now that company doesn't have to then go hire a third-party company to verify that they graduated from the University of South Carolina. We also are a, a uh, member of the Blackbaud Social Good Startup Accelerator. Blackbaud is a company here in South Carolina, but they're the world's largest SaaS for nonprofit applications. So they serve uh, tens of thousands of companies around the world, organizations, nonprofits that serve millions and millions of people around the world. And so we're designing the identity wallet to ultimately serve that population. So you can imagine those people around the world, both in the developing world and in the developed world who need to protect their identity or even maybe even establish their identity for the first time. There's about 1 billion people in the world who have no real identity. They have no bank account. They have no property that they own. So they can't really even say who they are and when the authorities are asking. With those decisions that you made on, on who to pilot with and what the first product look, looked like, right, and how you were going to go about making that first product, right, with any MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs, right? Tell me about some of those you worked through with you and your team and your co-founders and how you coped with those decisions. So first we had this, we had this grand vision of what it is we want to accomplish, as we were doing our research or not just our customer discovery of what the customers want, but what's, what's the rest, what are all the other people doing in digital identity? And then really one of the things we found out was the identity management as an industry is solely focused on the enterprise. They're not focused on the individual. So the first thing we did is we found this unserved niche it's not really a niche because it's 7 billion people, but, but this focus where it, it's not about the enterprise and, and scaling to meet the needs of this enterprise entity. It's what does the individual need in order to protect their identity and their digital assets as an individual without building this big honeypot of millions of accounts that a hacker is going to want to go after. And so that was the first thing we, we set in stone that even though we have B2B revenue models, the ultimate customer is the individual. And so even if we are working on it with an employer to help verify I, their background and all that information, or we're uh, working with a university to convert all these college grad degrees into verifiable credentials, all of those people are actually our primary customer. And so we now want to provide the ultimate customer experience that they've never had before in a digital wallet system and they want to use for the rest of their life. I mean, it's like going and buying a Gucci wallet. So you go spend 1500 bucks on a Gucci wallet that you're going to have in your, in your pocket. And it's so great. I mean, the, it's beautiful. People comment on it when you're using it. It feels good for you. 
and it, the utility of it is great. You just open it and use it. So we want to build that same experience ultimately in our wallet system. So that was the focus from the beginning, but we realized as we were, you know, we got a whole figma of what our beautiful user experience is going to be, but it's going to take a lot of money to create that. So we had to go all the way back to the beginning and say, okay, well, what do we need to build first? And that's the back end. So we got to build the functionality of all this stuff first and then layer in the experience on top of that. So right now we're, we've got the core functionality and we've got a user interface. <laughs> so it's not a customer experience really at all. Um, but it'll allow us to do the, our pilots, basically beta testing with some live people to get feedback from them to start adapting the back end and then evolve our, our um, user experience over time. Well, then I want to ask kind of how, how you're building your roadmap because you're, you're, you're sort of talking about that as, okay, we're going to do this first and then we're going to move to this section. How are you making those decisions? And, um, you know, how, how are you deciding, you know, what's the next most important thing to build? So we got accepted to the Startup Wind Accelerator, which is a San Francisco-based accelerator, but they partner with universities around the country to help professors and students bring their ideas to market. And so we got, uh, we were actually in a, uh, the, one of the first cohorts for last year in 2021. And through there, we met a lady by the name of Nicole Spricali. She was a mentor in the accelerator. And so after the program, we actually invited her to be our, one, our one of our advisors. And she jumped on board with us. Well, she's experienced in what's called the Entrepreneur Operating System, which is EOS. Most people probably just know it by EOS. But it's a way to operate your company, um, mostly small business, uh, doesn't have to be tech oriented, but um, it's not necessarily oriented towards a pure startup at the beginning. But we know that we're going to be scaling this operation quickly uh, because we have to. So what we wanted to do is really build a good, strong foundation in our operations. So with Nicole's help, we adopted the operating, uh, the entrepreneur operating system EOS into how we communicate. And it helped. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a guide to, um, everything from, uh, your C-suite meetings, your board meetings, uh, you know, how do you structure your financial transactions and things like that in regards to communicating that information back to the team. Uh, so it's a framework of which we can really operate more efficiently. And then through that, you know, we're able to, um, so we have meetings on Mondays and Fridays. And in that, there's a structure of, of the process that we go through to bring up problems, um, discuss how we're going to solve these problems, assign tasks to help accomplish the solution, and then track all that information while we're going through the process. And then ultimately, if we have to delegate to other team members that come on board, then we can do that through this framework. 
So, so we built, so the framework is really kind of the foundation. Um, and then through that, uh, you know, we all had to learn the operating system while we were also building the company. <laughs> so, so we had a lot of struggles, of course, um, through that process. And, and, and I told you, you know, we had a couple of falters there at the beginning. It wasn't because we didn't have the foundation of the operating It was primarily more of our, our timing as opposed to those who we were meeting, who we believed could help us. Um, so every startup goes through that process. But um, so we, we have regular meetings. We've got our process of which we engage with outside vendors. Um, you know, how do we structure those scopes of work and the contracts and all that kind of stuff now? We are much, much better now at doing that than we were 12 months ago <laughs> so, as a team. So, uh, so that's, uh, so that's, that's uh, you know, we've gone through three different outsourced companies and we believe we found the one that we like and they're doing a good job. And um, so, but now we got to deal with that. You know, how do you deal with, we don't have an internal team yet because we haven't had the money to be able to hire these really expensive guys and girls. Um, so it's all outsourced, right? So how do we keep them on task and all that kind of stuff? So that's 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 the biggest part that's difficult is just internal and external communication. Tell me how, how you're going about building your team. Uh, and maybe it's it's part of what you look for in that you know, third party who's helping you engineer the product, but also, you know, what you look for in those people that you're bringing in outside of engineering that indicate that they're the winning horses to join. You know, right at the beginning, it's okay. Yes, we have these attributes of the people that we need to accomplish our goal, but more importantly, it's really who they are and what do they believe and how does that relate to what our vision is for helping people protect them themselves? And so we have a process that we, of the interview process that we take them through where they're meeting us and a lot, a, it's a heavy on the cultural mix discussion um, as opposed to just, okay, I can code in Python. Um, and now we didn't necessarily do that with the outsourced vendors, um, but we chose a company on the developer side that came out of historic with the same self-sovereign identity. So they've been working on decentralized identity and self-sovereign identity and blockchain tech for five years. So they're, we're of the same mindset at that level. And then they have the experience of already working on within this environment of self-sovereign identity, leveraging Hyperledger and, and all that. Um, so that's, that's how we chose them. Um, and, and we're not really responsible for their, their team members, though we interact with them. I, I guess at the end of the day, we could ask them to remove somebody from the team, but we haven't had to do that because everybody's great. So let's talk about scalability. So it's it's early on in the process, right? You're building an MVP. You're not so worried about scaling it, but but how are you going to address scalability in the future? Um, and are you going to kind of fight it as you grow? So we are building to scalability. So because we have to, since we're a consumer, a B two C model. 
Well, we have a three-year, a five-year, and a 10-year goal. Um, we believe our attainable is a million members over three years. Our 10-year goal is 500 million. So we've got to scale from zero to 1 million over the next three years, and then scale from 1 million to 500 million over the next seven years after that. <laughs> we have to build for scale today, and, 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 and really, the way that blockchain is structured today, with that many members and those many transactions, the blockchain as it's structured today would not be able to handle a 500 million member ecosystem. So we know that we're gonna have to be on the cutting edge of transactions, at least the transactions that are utilizing blockchain because we have other technologies we can do around securing identity. So staying on the forefront of the technology as it evolves, if we're not necessarily helping it evolve ourselves by bringing in our own IP or developing our own IP, but that's our vision. I mean, we have to scale. For example, a company called Avast, A-V-A-S-T. In the United States, there's a company called Norton LifeLock, and they help individuals and families with cybersecurity and protecting our identity and all that. Well, Avast is the same company, but in, in the, Europe. So they're merging. So they're getting ready to merge the two companies together, and they're going to have a base of 500 million individuals and families that they serve. Well, they just confirmed our business model because they bought the pioneer of self-sovereign identity, a company called Evernim, in order to bring that technology to their 500 million members. But they're only going to be serving 500 million. So there's still another 7.1 billion people out there that need help. But we have to be able to scale, and we know we're going to be venture bad because there's no way for us to scale fast enough without being able to bring in venture capital to make it happen. That's why we have to get the user, the, uh, sorry, I hate the word user. That is a bad connotation for people who are accessing the internet. But we have to make, we have to make it to where it's easy for them to first get a grasp of what managing their own identity is and how they can do it through this simple wallet, and then why they really need to do it. Uh, the, the company that I use in my pitch in comparison is, uh, in 2010, this company called Coinbase started up. They got accepted to Y Combinator in 2011, and their whole purpose was to educate and then create a as frictionless as possible on-ramp for people to purchase cryptocurrency. And this is in 2011 when Bitcoin was $1.30 or whatever it was. So Coinbase was, was, was being built when nobody knew anything about cryptocurrency in order to ultimately bring on consumers to purchase cryptocurrency. And so they spent the last 10 years doing that. They are only serving 35 million people. So they have a market cap of almost 70 billion or 80 billion dollars based on only serving 35 million people to help them buy crypto. In 10 years, we believe we'll be at 500 million helping people with identity, which they use every day, all day long. So the, the value of the future of managing, helping people manage their own identity is going to be huge. As you step out on the balcony, 
and you look across what you've built so far, what, what are you most proud of? Well, first of all, we got a cool team. So we got like mesh. So it was, it was Erica and I first. So I'm 60, she's 24, 25. She's female, young, I'm old dude. And then we brought in Seth, who's another young buck. And then Nicole came on. So our Nicole Spricali was our advisor, but she was like digging in. We have a requirement of uh, five hours a month for our advisors. Well, she was like spending way much more time on us to where in July we finally invited her to be our COO. And then after that, we actually made her a co-founder. So the four of us are the co-founders, two males, two females, two young people who are learning, and then two old people who can help teach them. <laughs> and uh, and so we're getting it done. Um, I mean, we, we convinced we convinced about 30 people to give us 500,000 bucks. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's anyway, we still got more to do on the fundraising side, but, uh, so that's probably, that's the most cool thing. But the, the thing that I'm probably most proud of is that, uh, is the mission that we're on because we're not, of course we want to make money, but our mission and vision is wrapped around helping people protect themselves. I mean, if this idea of this metaverse thing, that's big deal now, you know, VCs throwing money left and right at this stuff and Mark Zuckerberg changed his name of his company to Meta and, and Dorsey changes the name of Square to Block. And so they're getting into all this stuff, right? So if this, meta, this idea of this metaverse happens, our data is already being stolen every day or every second we go on the internet. Our, our identity is being stolen because they're making money off of what we do on the internet. When we go into this virtual environment and they can see our whole being and track and trace our whole being, they're, they're I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Meta just filed a patent to be able to read the facial expressions of an avatar in the metaverse. Um, basically, they're doing it through the um, through the, the, the headset. It's technically how they're doing it. But at the end of the day, they're, they're going to be able to register facial expressions based upon the activities we're doing in this environment and understand what makes us do things. And then they're going to present situations or products or, or events in the metaverse that get exposed to us, that present those emotions and actions, and then we'll do them because that, that's how well they will know us. They already know us very well, but they're gonna know us so well. So what we, what our vision is, is, I, I call it this indieverse. So if we're going to go in the metaverse where all this stuff is happening around the world, um, in the universe, virtually, we we need to have an indieverse where we're where we're protecting everything of who we are in a f- way where we can mask ourselves as we go into different environments, so that those guys can't track us as we're going through all this stuff, because that's how they capture the data. And then they mesh it with all the other data points they have on us. 
and then they use that to then serve their customer who is primarily advertisers uh, and they so they're manipulating us and it's going to even be worse in the metaverse so that that's that's like the thing that i'm most proud of is that okay if we can pull it off if we can make this happen we are going to be protecting people's lives well, let's flip the script a little bit, even in, and especially actually in the early days of, of startups, right? You, you make mistakes left and right and you learn from them. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Well, the biggest mistake was the person slash company we hired at first to help us build this stuff. I mean, this person on paper, I mean, he's got three patents in encryption and cryptography. And... He believes in God and he, and he believes in this privacy realm. And I mean, we, we even offered him to be our CTO and a co-founder. Um, and he didn't want to do that because he wanted to run his own company, which is all fine. That's all fine. But we contracted with him because of we believed that it was the right thing to do at the time, both from a capability standpoint, a dollar amount that we had in the bank to be able to pay somebody. And, and then what our meshed vision was. So we hired this guy and then he ran off with our money. <laughs> so so I, write a, I write a letter, an email to our, we call them our founding investors. Some of them are, are they're all friends and family, but so I write a, a email to them, updating them on everything that's happening every month. And when we discovered that, um, I, I, I'm tran- we're transparent and everything. So that was probably the most difficult email for me to write was saying that I screwed up by hiring this guy to build our stuff that you were investing in us to build. That was going to be in the book that we ultimately write. <laughs> so. Let's wish to you, Gordon. Who influences the way that you work? Maybe a, a CEO or an architect or an entrepreneur, a person, really any person that you look up to and why? Well, so I just published a book called How to Create Yourself. And in it is all of that. <laughs> so it's, it's 77,000 words. Um, and it's on Amazon. You can go to Amazon and search for How to Create Yourself. I haven't cre- done the Audible uh, version yet. Um, so in it, I t- it talks about uh, everything, all the people that have influenced my life, including my parents, um, now a lot of it is my wife. I mean, she's, you, you think I'm hyper and type a man. She's like, while we were raising my $500,000 in friends and family money, money, she raised $5.2 million to build a new building for her. She's got a preschool for medically fragile children called Apero Academy. And they have already outgrown their building. So they need to raise $5 million to build a new building. She did that in six months and seven months, and they're already halfway through building the building. So, <laughs> so she she kicks my butt all over the place. Um, um, but of course, you know, as you can see behind me, um, Jesus is uh, probably the number one influence on my life, as much as I I can. Um, but two people that I like to read. Uh, from and, and, and gain some insight from uh, Gary Ryan Blair. So he wrote um, um, a book called Everything Counts. It's basically about goals, setting goals and all that. 
he also has a uh, service a video. Um, what do you call it? A, a a program that you go through over 100 days. So five minute, five to six minute video every morning for 100 days to help 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 get yourself set um, for the year and attain your goals. And and uh, so he forwarded my book. I appreciate everything he wrote about it. He's you know I uh, we've been chatting about personal development for nine, ten years now. Um. And then uh, Tom Butler Bowden, he writes a series of books where he summarizes all the classics. So he's got a, he's got a, a series of books called the 50 best uh, self-help classics, spiritual classics, philosophy classics. I mean, he's got a whole, uh, six or seven of these things to where you can go in and learn anything you need to from all of the gurus in history. All concise in one place. Um, so I recommend you get all those. From a historical figure standpoint, Winston Churchill is my guy, man. I mean, <laughs> he helped save the world during World War II. And, and then right after he, he saved the world, they kicked him out of being uh, prime minister. <laughs> so... <laughs> But uh, he, he's, he's not only smart, he was not only smart, uh, he was a writer, he wrote the history of the English-speaking people. I mean, so he writes, he wrote, wrote so much, and then he's a funny guy, real funny guy. And uh, so I appreciate Winston Churchill probably the most, from a historical figure, besides Jesus. <laughs> well, if you could go back to the very beginning, perhaps when the idea was in, in you know, in, in its inception form or when you got started, um, what would you do differently? Or is there anywhere you consider taking a different approach? Every startup's different. Uh, I've done several. Some I've tried to do by myself. I realize that that's, you can't really do that. And then, so this one has been great from the standpoint of being able to pull a team together to make it happen. I, I would say we, even though we are we adopted this EOS system from a process standpoint, um, I would probably have recruited, I would probably have pursued an engineer earlier than we right now we've got we're actually looking for an engineer to to come on board full-time with us because uh, I'm not a programmer myself I mean I have that mindset and all that I kind of understand it but I can't like for example I can't if if our outsourcers are behind schedule I can't go in and spend the next 24 hours smacking out code to get it done right so we need somebody like that so I, I think the we probably should have recruited somebody on the team early um, that came from the engineering side. The problem is, is we're in South Carolina. Uh, I'm trying to create a company that is a high impact tech company that comes out of South Carolina and stays in South Carolina because I love South Carolina and we need companies like that. Um, the venture money in South Carolina invests in real estate. <laughs> so, 
So there's a little bit of biopharma, a little bit of tech here and there, but primarily, you know, all of the people here understand real estate and that's all they invest in. So we don't really have a whole, I mean, we've got pockets of, of tech, but not, there's no there's no tech center with multiple unicorns who are putting money back into the community. So there's not any. Uh, so we have a hard time doing that here. So I really am trying hard to do that, or at least I was doing that in the beginning. And so I didn't want to just hire an Indian programmer who might be the best guy in the world at a good price to come on board with the team because I was South Carolina first. But now we kind of thrown that out the window. <laughs> so, uh, so we're opening it up and broadening. So we probably should have done that a little bit earlier. Well, well, last question, Gordon. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give this person having gone down this road several times? So first of all, I let them do their pitch. And then I'll do like kind of what you do in this interview is ask, okay, well, what's the process of how you got here and all that. But at the end of it, when we're getting ready to hop off the plane, I tell them that no matter what your vision is of what you want to accomplish, what it is today, when you get there, it's going to be something totally different. (laughs) So you have to be open-minded, certainly be confirmed in your conviction that this is what needs to happen, but it might end up happening in a different way that you envision it. Um, So you might still be serving the problem that you envision, but it'll probably be solved in a different way than you think it will be. And so as you're going down this through this pathway, you have to be beholden to your vision and your conviction, but be open-minded to the journey that it takes to get there. Um, because that's where all your faults and, and things are going to happen. And the market's not, the market might not accept the way that you want to solve the problem. Yes, they may acknowledge the problem, but they might not like the way you want to solve it. So if you're not adapting along the way to customer discovery and, and, and their views on how they're taking it to your product, then you're not going to be, you're not going to have a business at the end because there's not going to be any customers. We all need to have a uh, place that we want to be in the future. And we have to kind of map out how we're going to get there, but we also have to be flexible enough to go with the flow. God has a plan and and, uh, he's in ultimate control, but we're the ones who react to all the things that happen. That's solid advice. Well, Gordon, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Thrivacy. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.